是台湾人，台湾人，台湾人。Welcome to Taiwan Yuan, your global community of Taiwanese makers, innovators, and advocates. I'm your host Cindy, and today is a special episode where I get to sit down one-on-one with YouTube's co-founder Steve Chen, who probably needs no introduction. <laughs> in the recent years, Steve has resettled his family back in Taiwan, and he's gotten very involved in shaping Taiwan's startup scene. So listen in to hear what he's been up to and how he plans on connecting Taiwanese founders to the rest of the world. Hi, Steve. Tell us about yourself and your connection to Taiwan. Hi, Cindy. Good, good to be here. I'm Steve. I was born in Taiwan, and I went through kindergarten in the first two years of elementary school in Taiwan, with kind of vague memories of that. Of what that experience was like, but I spent the majority of the my childhood, adolescence, and definitely my career life out in the U.S. So I moved to the U.S. when I was eight years old, starting third grade, and really speaking my first words of English when I was moving to the U.S. And I specifically was the Midwest in the Chicago area where I moved to, where I went to. From third grade on through junior high, high school, and even stayed within Illinois, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign for college, where I started in the computer science, and I started meeting with、uh, Mark Andreessen, the, the founders of、uh, Netscape, and through that route, ended up going to Silicon Valley. As soon as I left in 1999, left University of Illinois, and I moved out to Silicon Valley for 20 years, where it was. We get more into this, but really the career、yeah. of starting at PayPal as being part of that that whole PayPal Mafia group, finding <laughs> the two other co-founders of YouTube during that experience of the five six years spent、mm-hmm. at PayPal, and then starting YouTube in two thousand five, selling it to Google within something like eighteen months, and staying on at Google for another、oh, wow. three or YouTube Google for about three four years. And then even working with Google Ventures, their venture capital、mm-hmm. arm, for a little bit. But eventually, in 2019, 20 years after being in Silicon Valley, ended up moving along with the rest of my family. But most importantly, my two younger kids back to Taiwan. And this was all before COVID started. It was actually my older son was in fourth grade, and I thought it was a great experience for me to actually have that kind of balanced experience of being growing up, born, growing up a bit in. Taiwan, then having a lot of my growing up in the U in the U.S., and I wanted to try to have that same experience for my kids, and so that's what brought me back to Taiwan in 2019. But with everything with COVID and all the unexpected things that happened after that, we、yeah. we we planned on staying for two years, but now we're in 2024 and we're still in Taiwan. That's awesome, though. Okay, what a life! Of course, amazing life, and we're gonna. Um, go chronologically a little bit to dig deeper. So, starting with when you grew up in Chicago as you know, first generation Taiwanese American immigrant, did you always feel connected to Taiwan at that time? Because you know, for myself, I think I actually rejected my own Asian identity for a while, and then it wasn't until I was an adult wanted to reconnect with that. I definitely agree. I mean, I think some of that was feeling kind of like a foreigner. If I felt, I mean, it was almost. A kind of a binary decision. You couldn't get kind of the best of both worlds, and so it was really, I think, feeling like 
there was a need for abandonment of my past of being a Taiwanese in order to truly be American, especially in the Midwest, in the Chicago area. And so in a way, like I did feel like there was a a little bit of social pressure to have Mm. to let that go if I were to be integrated into the sort of Midwestern American ecosystem that I really wanted to be a part of if I knew that I was going to be there for an indefinite period of time. And then this was also back in like 1986. Like this is way before internet, before any availability to Mm -hmm. be able to just hop online, to be able to access content, to see the news from different parts around the world. And so what I was really getting was part of the local Midwest environment And to be part of that, I tried as much as possible to become one of the Midwesterners. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think for us too, we just kept up with newspapers for a long time, right? And you kind of fly back to Taiwan whenever you can. Then I guess, when did you start feeling reconnected? It's interesting. I want to actually say that it was almost a kind of stumbled across it. It was, a, as I was saying kind of earlier, that the move in 2019 was to get my Asian American kids who were born in the U.S. exposure to Asia, right? And um, I thought that it was one thing to just go to the different celebrations and the different Asian celebrations that you have in the, the U.S. A lot of the Asian American fairness and initiatives that I was part of back there in the Bay Area. But I really felt like I wanted them to really experience and to really truly feel that they needed to be living in Asia. And Taiwan ended up being just actually the easiest place to go to. It wasn't necessarily the top choice just because I was born in Taiwan. I received this gold card, which Taiwan was just started to give out in, I think, 2017. And as part of that was to welcome people with Taiwanese roots to come back to Taiwan. And so with that, it was just the easiest place to go to move to and especially to bring the kids to a school and to find a residence for one or two years. And so I chose Taiwan because of that, not necessarily because of my roots. I just wanted them to get exposure to generally what it's like to live in Asia. But it's turned out to be, looking back, of course, it's turned out to be such a great experience of how Taiwan handled COVID and so many Mm -hmm. others. Over 2,000 people with this gold card system came back to Taiwan during the next two years after I had moved there. Many of them coming back from Silicon Valley, many of them coming back with their own kids because Taiwan, they only, they didn't cancel and do any homeschooling. School continued to go on for 2019, 2020, 2021. And so we felt like it ended up being a great decision and we couldn't have picked a better place. But of course, at the time that we chose it, it was really for different reasons. Well, I had no idea you came in through a gold card as well. It's a great promotion for the gold card program. And I mean, it's really that easy, huh? Because I think some of my friends used gold card during COVID too. So I think it was just meeting some salary requirement. It was, um, and, and actually, I think the gold card right now, it, it goes through various ministries depending on, I think the overall more generic initiative is to bring back talent to Taiwan, especially mm. talent that has some connection back to Taiwan already, some Taiwanese heritage in the family, perhaps. And so in my case, it happened to be within the sort of science and technology route, but there are different pillars that you can through with the gold card system. And so I think it's still 
kind of very much in its infancy stages, but we've already started to see many people thinking that, yes, I do have some connections back to Taiwan. Maybe I don't know how to utilize that yet, but by using the gold card after moving back for a few years, I find, and in my case, this is speaking, that I personally found that after one or two years, I really enjoyed being back in Taiwan, not just by myself, but with the entire family. So what was a one or two year idea has mm-hmm. continued to flourish to four, five more years. And, um, and we're thinking about just staying in Taiwan indefinitely. Wow, that's awesome. Oh, I'm so excited to hear that. I'm going back in time a little bit more. When you moved to Silicon Valley in 1999, that was during, personally, I think a very significant period for tech startups. And coincidentally, I actually also moved to Silicon Valley in 1999 oh, <laughs> because okay. my dad, yeah, my dad took a job at Foxconn, different kind of yes. <laughs> environment, <laughs> different kind of company. But me as a kid, I also saw how uh, the excitement of all of these new companies starting up. And mm. I'm very curious, you know, how did your time there with your amazing experiences at PayPal, eventually founding YouTube, how did that form the person you are today? Now, I think that it's a great question because it reflects I've been doing a lot more self-reflection, especially after coming back to Taiwan. And the reason for that is because there have been a lot of Taiwanese-American success stories coming out of Silicon Valley. However, it's been a lot smaller and slimmer when it comes to Taiwanese entrepreneurs, not the Taiwanese-American, but the Taiwanese entrepreneurs coming from Taiwan in the last 20 mm-hmm. years. right? And I think that many people were scratching their heads as to why is there such a disproportionate number of Taiwanese-Americans, many of which, mm-hmm. like myself, were born in Taiwan, but may have gone over to the U.S. when they were in elementary, junior high, high school, college. But then how come they're more successful, whereas in the last 20 years, you don't see many of these startup unicorns starting in Taiwan. And so I started thinking about what was it that made the difference between, you know, how did I get from the Midwest to Silicon Valley to joining PayPal and, of course, joining YouTube? And I really think that's important because I'm trying to do that in Taiwan now that I'm based there to try to help the local startups. And part of that is to see, well, what was the difference? What made the difference back in 1999 for me? And I really think that a key part of it was needing to feel commitment and needing to put that, I think, the risk tolerance to be at a level where you really are ready to commit. You are really ready to buy that one-way ticket to Silicon Valley. And whatever it is that you're going to do out there, success or failure, you're going to stay there and you're going to keep working through the failures until you succeed. It's not, let's work out exactly how to guarantee that success Mm -hmm. before buying that ticket out to Silicon Valley. Plus at the time that I buy that Silicon Valley ticket, it'll be a round trip ticket rather than a one-way ticket because if something doesn't work out, I can always return back to my original roots. And I think that was like the, the key thing that made me, when I moved to PayPal at the time, and even starting YouTube as a co-founder and with many of the pivots that every startup has to go through where you go with an initial idea, it doesn't work out. You figure out what the data metrics are for how you're going to measure success. And if it doesn't work out, it's not about giving up because that is your only source that you're going to be putting all of your energy into. And so you just continue to work out what those, how to navigate through the failures and the hurdles until you can make it to the target goal. And I think that in a way, 
that's the communication that many of us that's coming back from Silicon Valley have tried to spread in Taiwan, which is you don't need to really think out before the version 1.0 release of your product how this is going to be the it doesn't have to be guaranteed story that you're going to have to know how to get this complete product out. Well, again, and uh, YouTube, when we started in 2005, was nothing like the YouTube today. I mean, it was like a mm-hmm. supposed to be like a video dating service site, right? And then we found out that that wasn't working. We continue to change and continue to evolve. And then eventually, even after the acquisition with Google, continue to collaborate and work with the, the Google team. And it continued to grow as, as YouTube grew over a period of time. So I think that's important. That's a story that I tell to a lot of the entrepreneurs in Taiwan, which is, look, YouTube started as a dating service with video dating. You know, it didn't work. We got zero videos, zero views. And so we had to change. So you don't need to plan out exactly what that your next biggest idea is going to be. And before you take that first initial step, you have to have the full vision already. You can take that first step and then see and then continue to evolve after you've already taken that step. Wow. That actually changed my view of maybe who I am. (laughs) And Steve, as you were saying that, I was thinking maybe it's actually the immigrant impact too, or being an immigrant in some ways, you know, you're more, you're already taking a huge risk. And, you know, you did buy that one-way ticket as an immigrant. So there's something there, I think. I think certainly. I think there's something there as well. And and, and I'm going to say that it's a bit about growing up in the U.S. as an immigrant and making many of those decisions, right, about being able to, just needing to know that already you're in the minority, already you don't really fit in, and you do have to make those key decisions about how are you going to better integrate, better immerse, and better be part of the experience. And many of those decisions are hard decisions, but you realize in order for those decisions to really pan out, you really have to commit to it. And I think that as part of that experience, I think it's not just my story, but a lot of the Taiwanese Americans, they've had to go through. It doesn't matter if they were from the Midwest, if they're from the East Coast, meeting Taiwanese that were grew up in New Orleans, completely different environments, but have the same, very much the similar stories of what I had to go through on a more abstract level. And we all ended up in Silicon Valley on these one-way trips mm-hmm. out there and all ended up creating something out there. So... I am personally very thankful you created YouTube because I use it every day (laughs) and I have so much embarrassing content on there that I hope are all private now. I really hope. And when we were talking about, you know, keeping up with the news earlier, I said my parents used to read the paper newspapers. Now my mom, like clockwork every day, she watches Taiwanese and Hong Kong news on YouTube. That's how she's staying connected now, which is incredible. So I guess if I had to ask you one question about YouTube, it would be, what was your biggest lesson from YouTube? Well, there are two parts, right? I mean, I think that, or sorry, two ways to look at this question, because I think that what YouTube has become is far, far larger than what we originally envisioned in the first place. And even during my time where I was a full-time sort of CTO and still co-founder of the company, some of the early, early challenges that YouTube had to face were faced by me. But if you look back now, 20 plus years later, you probably wouldn't realize that these were at all some of the issues that YouTube had to deal with. But for us, a lot of those early days was just trying to figure out whether or not the system could really grow and really be able to be self-sustaining. And a part of that is the, the economics of it. You have three 
real groups on YouTube. You have the content creators, uh, you have the viewers, and then you have the advertisers. But in order to make them all happy, the problem is still ends up being, with a lot of the cases, ends up being content, copyrights, and the, on the legal side about whether or not you can take any of this content and put in Lady Gaga background music and be able to still monetize this content with advertisers. There's always going to be this contentious issue with copyright, and especially on a global service like YouTube, where it's visible and viewable from all around the world. It gets even more complicated as you start getting anime content coming in from Japan. Is it okay if it's uploaded and someone that's watching that content is coming in from outside of Japan? Inside of Japan, do you have to take that down? So there's a lot of that content and how much of it is actually ends up being copyrighted content. If it's only five seconds, is that okay? If it's that's just playing in the TV and then background. And so those are some of the early issues that YouTube had to really deal with when we started mm-hmm. out with upload any content you want and then we'll store it for free. But then we didn't really know what types of content that we were really going to be receiving until we started seeing those early views. And so for me, the biggest challenge was making and evolving YouTube into a self-sustaining system that it is today, where the YouTubers can really start developing their own economic model, where they can almost develop a full-time career creating content on YouTube, and they can get part of that monetization and revenue share that YouTube gets from the advertising. But there was a lot of work to get to that point where you can actually work out the deals with the content and copyright owners of this content in order for them to collaborate and to be able to use their music, to be able to use their content in a way that is sufficient and will benefit everyone that plays along. And finally, of course, today, I think uh, YouTube has done a tremendous job in pleasing all three sides Viewers are happy because they're able to view whatever content they want from wherever in the world they want. If you want to watch Taiwanese content, and you can you can do that from the U.S., you can do that from the mm-hmm. Middle East, you can do that from Taiwan. The advertisers are happy, and then the content creators, I think, most importantly, are happy because they get to really focus on their passions and their interests. And here's a platform where they can actually focus on it and still be able to create a revenue model and develop a career from it. And I think, like, you know, I, I mean, I gave these um, talks occasionally to like third graders and fourth graders in Taiwan to try to kind of promote them to think outside the box, to not always have to adhere to the kind of the, the thin straight lines of what their, their parents want them to do with their career trajectory. And it's always funny because when you go around and you ask these kids, what do they want to do when they grow up? The majority of them always say, I want to be a YouTuber when I grow up. I yeah. want to be able to create my own content and I want to be able to, to really monetize a passion that I have. Yeah. So that would be Gen Alpha, so the kids still in school. But Gen Z, that is an, a real viable career right now, which is content creator. And that's wonderful, right? It's like you almost created a new mini economy of sorts, a new ecosystem for people. Anish, do you have advice for people when they say, I want to be a YouTuber? That's the part where, <laughs> no, like even my content, the most, most views I get is about 100 on my videos. <laughs> I think there's definitely a big difference between wearing the hats of the technology co-founders mm-hmm. of companies versus the biggest YouTube socialites that are out there. I think that uh, the content creation and then the creators of the ideas and the systems are very different camps. Yeah. To be honest, 
before you mentioned the three user groups, I never thought about the advertisers, but it's so true because that's, you know, part of what keeps the content free for us as users. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I always kind of have ear to the ground as to what's going on within the evolution of those models and that ecosystem. And it's been interesting to see how that's evolved over time, right? Because advertisers in some way have a fixed budget on a quarterly mm-hmm. annual basis. And a lot of that money is actually moving away from traditional media. A lot of that money is moving away from whether it's newspapers, magazines, traditional radio, TV shows, so on. And a lot of it's going online to places like Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, where more and more users are actually looking at this content online. And I think it's going to, it's just a continuous evolution as that happens. All three of these camps, they all have to kind of evolve as the, just the, the entire ecosystem evolves, right? If market and advertisers are going in a certain direction and they're putting more money into celebrities, into individual content creators, then more people will want to become that content creator and then more viewers will be. And, you know, and I think that it's, it's a continuous evolutionary model. It's not something that's uh, remained certainly from the time that we started YouTube in 2005, 2006, when such a model didn't even exist to the time when I left in 2010, 2011, where it's just, we, by the time that I left, it just became legal to even create content and monetize it on YouTube. And then I think now we're seeing that people in the more traditional media channels, they're getting afraid that they're just not able to create content because they're not able to get the capital to create this content because of the monetization that's not there to be able to supply that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And as a consumer myself, I have been seeing more and more of my favorite content creators become fully sponsored. And there's always that pushback, like you're saying, with the ecosystem evolving of viewers wanting content creators to remain authentic and unbiased. So I'm curious to see, since you're very much on the ground of this, is there a trend that you foresee in the next five years? That's a good question. I mean, I think that there's a... I think one of the, the the more difficult questions, right? I think is that where does the services, where does services like Facebook and YouTube and Instagram, TikTok, where do they fall in when it comes to kind of defining like uh, what is what surfaces as far as like related content or content that's offered to the end user? Does it matter if there are prejudices? If there are certain fake news that's in certain Mm -hmm. pieces of content. I think that's going to be an issue because, of course, when we started YouTube, we didn't intend it to become, for example, a news channel outlet. And and even when you compare with news channels, compared to different news channels and different newspapers, they take very different perspectives Mm -hmm. on the same issues. And so I think it's a difficult, it's going to be an evolving but a difficult problem to overcome when it comes to can you still create a platform that's trusted as a pathway to be able to get your general dose of media of content that you want? But then having to try to balance that with was what I just was what I just watched or was just recommended to me by the recommendation engines of these services. Is that true content? Is that re- real 
write content? Or is that just content offered to me because they want to be able to better monetize and get more views on their services? I, I think that's going to be an interesting story that has played out, I think, in more traditional media, but now is becoming, it's surfacing on some of these digital platforms as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So going back to Taiwan for a little bit. So you've mentioned, you know, you when you moved to Taiwan initially, you were thinking just a couple of years and you're still there now. Is there anything particular you really appreciate now that you've been in Taiwan for a while? Maybe you took for granted before. I want to say that everybody should give Taiwan a try because and, and when I say a try, you have to make that expand over the first six months because it's not like some countries that make it so easy, a single website that you can go through with a simple series of steps and all of a sudden you have your housing situation figured out, you have your visa situation figured out, you have your schools for your kids, bank accounts, credit cards, phones. A lot of that is difficult to do in Taiwan. You know, if um, we didn't get some of the help from our friends to carry us along and educate us through this process, Mm -hmm. especially my wife being Korean American, she can't speak Mm -hmm. or read the Chinese and while I can speak at a third grade level, <laughs> and I certainly read at that level as well, right? And so I think that it was difficult to just find school for the kids, to find a, a property to rent. It was very difficult to try to open up a bank account if you don't, if you're signing these contracts and you don't, mm-hmm. you can't read through what it is yeah. that you're actually signing up to do. <laughs> but I want to say that Look like we did it because we were determined and dedicated for the kids to be in that to be in that environment really hands on. But after two years living there, we continued to extend our stay. And it's because after I think the first few months after you get situated there, you start realizing the differences. And um it's such a safe place to be. It's such a convenient place to be when it comes to everything from things within walking distance. Anywhere you want to go within Taipei is at most 15 minutes away. And you can kind of go by, if you want to go by via Uber, by walking a lot of the places that you want to walk, be it the, the public transportation, by taxi. There's so many ways to be able to get around and the convenience of it, the safety of it. And I think like many of these backstate on the Taiwan side, I'm always telling them that I think Taiwan can do a much better job marketing itself when it comes yeah. to, there are so many great things that Taiwan, even I'm, we were looking at, should we try looking at Singapore or Hong Kong, Korea, Japan, all these other places. We thought of Taiwan because again, I was saying it was, it was, it was a gold car. That was it because it was easy to do, but it was only after moving there, we realized, wow, looking back, we made the right decision without knowing what the variables were that we were really looking at. And it's really because we were we did the homework, but Taiwan really just relative to other oh. countries, I think fails in marketing itself as a great place, especially for families with kids. It's such a hidden gem. For my friends, when I ask them about Taiwan, some people think of it as Thailand. So that's problem number one. And then they really only know about the night markets. But I'm like, oh, there's so much more. And even for myself, it wasn't until COVID I stayed longer and I visited outside of Taipei. There's just so much to discover and so many up and coming cities right within Taiwan. And I don't know how to help the market better. I think especially during the COVID period, a lot of people that have Taiwanese roots went back to Taiwan and we were all kind Mm -hmm. of scratching our heads talking about the same thing. Like we were kind of 
discovering for ourselves that we really enjoy it here? And are there ways to be able to better connect Taiwan with the rest of the world? And one of the more adventurous initiatives that I'm really working on a lot in Taiwan is to try to better create bridges with Taiwan, with the rest of the world. I think that Taiwan is not just geographically an island, but an island when it comes to doing a lot of its day-to-day businesses. And I think that I think it's very important to, from day one, like in Silicon Valley, in day one, you are part of that global ecosystem. If you want to release a product, you have to think about what all the other people are doing around the world. Whereas in Taiwan, and especially in the startup community, many of them think about just what are the other folks in Taiwan, what are the other startups in Taiwan doing without thinking about the larger picture. And I think only Mm -hmm. when you start having more people going back and forth between Taiwan and outside of Taiwan traveling and bringing back that experience bi-directionally, I think is when you start really being able to sprinkle more of that global scent into Taiwan. And I think that's that's critical. And because of COVID, so many people from Taiwan but have lived outside of Taiwan, all came back. And now we're kind of, you know, more assimilated within this Taiwan network and then working with the local governments to talk about at least giving them our opinionated feedback about these are some of the things that I think that would be great for us to try at least with Taiwan as an experiment to be able to see if we can do more within Taiwan rather than having it done with just Taiwanese Americans only after they move out of Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you're in such a great position to do that, especially with access to things like Silicon Valley funding for startups. Are there other ways you're bridging Taiwan? I think it still all falls really under this notion of better connecting Taiwan with the rest of the mm-hmm. world. But it's through multiple ways. I mean, through trying to find more investors, global investors into Taiwanese startups. I think an important one is getting more of these Taiwanese entrepreneurs to feel more confident that they can grow something globally rather than having to really focus on the local Taiwanese ecosystem, they can think about how to do something global from day one. I think a lot of them fear it because they they feel like they don't have enough confidence and knowledge about what that global network is like, whereas they feel like they understand the end user, the end clients in Taiwan a lot more. So, but I, I, and I think that that's somewhat justified, but I think in order for that to change, you really need to, and some other countries already do this, I think, Countries like Israel, Singapore, they already have systems in place that send a lot of their entrepreneurs and they help them go overseas to get education, to be able to integrate, physically integrate into the Silicon Valley network. Right? And I think that that's something that I'd love to be able to see more Taiwanese entrepreneurs be able to really, really spend time in that global system, in, in, in the case of technology startups, it ends up being in Silicon Valley. And I think that's an important part to really feel what it's like in Silicon Valley and to, to be able to really live the differences between Silicon Valley and Taiwan. And I think that's the only way that you're going to be able to play at an equal level with and compete on the global level uh, rather than just trying to do it all within Taiwan and guessing what the rest of the world is looking for in its next unicorn startup. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's totally true. We all have imposter syndrome, but I think it is harder to even be able to relate until you're there yourself. Yeah, yeah. In order to really create this bridge, it requires collaboration on both sides and you meet in the middle. And I think that 
one part that I'm still trying to kind of suffer and overcome is getting to know the local Taiwanese ecosystem better. For this to succeed, it really needs two co-founders, someone that's coming from outside of Taiwan and someone that's coming from inside Taiwan and making all the variables and all the sort of understandings that they have of how the local ecosystems operate, how to connect that better. So to be honest, that's really why I reached out is I really admire how helpful you've been in your post YouTube years. You just, it just seems like everything you're doing is really for the Taiwanese startup community, whether it's helping expats make their move easier, whether it's, you know, helping entrepreneurs think more globally. And that's why I didn't really ask you about how has your Taiwanese identity impacted you as a person? Because I see it myself. Like I just see that when you're trying to be helpful, right? That is the Taiwanese spirit. And I think you embody a lot of that. I'm kind of excited to hear what are you up to next? You know, along these lines, what I would love trying to start things that I'm a little bit more knowledge about in Silicon Valley and trying to do it from Taiwan. But I think the real exciting one is actually without naming the venture capital funds, but working with a few of the top Silicon Valley funds on a global level and utilizing kind of our own relationships and connections with them to really get a direct channel for Taiwanese startups that otherwise would not have been able to directly connect with these VCs to be able to get them the connection, but really to be able to teach them in for a period of six weeks to eight weeks and in kind of an accelerator program inside Taiwan about how is it that you're going to be able to, after these six to eight weeks, be able to be at the peak, at the top of a company, a target company or a target startup that the top accelerators and the top venture capitals and the top angel investors in Silicon Valley would invest in. And so it's a little bit of combining both sides, our own experiences in Silicon Valley, as well as being able to be physically hands-on with mm-hmm. the entrepreneurs in Taiwan. And um, I'm really optimistic because I still think that at the end of the day, the talent is great in Taiwan. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of, look, like they're not going to have the opportunities like that we had in Silicon Valley to be able to knock on the doors of Sequoia Capital, of Lightspeed Ventures, of all the venture capital firms there on Sand Hill Road because they didn't, they didn't have those connections. But if we made those connections available and we educated that, look, if you have the right ideas, you too can make this bridge happen. I'm pretty excited about what can come out of that. And I also see that I think that it's a very viral effect. And I think as soon as you see one successful company that's coming out of Taiwan in this sort of Web 3.0, in this AI world on a global level, you're going to automatically convince many of the naysayers that are in the market in Taiwan that says it's not possible. It just takes one startup to make all of them believe that they too can accomplish that same very goal. Okay. Well, I'll be cheering you on for sure. And okay, just to end this, because you moved to Taiwan initially for your kids, I would love to know how do your kids feel about Taiwan now? They have experienced a bit of the same kind of childhood background that I grew up with, right? A combination of sort of one leg in the East and one leg in the West. And so they definitely feel that, and it really takes that kind of background to be able to see clearly 
what is missing mm. on both sides. I'm happy to see what can evolve from this with all the kids and all the friends of my kids that have all moved back. It is trying to take the best of both and trying to combine it to be able to create something that can take advantage of the the best that Taiwan has to offer, that the best that the West has to offer, and to be able to combine it together where the sum is greater than the parts. And I think that that's a reality that's waiting to happen once the environment and the ecosystem in Taiwan is ready for that role. I hope that conversation was inspiring and maybe gave you some new ideas. If you're itching to move to Taiwan, you can always apply for the gold card by visiting goldcard.nat.gov.tw. It's an open work permit, you can work for any company, and you get to bring your whole family. If you want to learn more about starting a business in Taiwan, you can visit Startup Island Taiwan. Finally, if you want to know more about connecting Taiwan to Silicon Valley or vice versa, you should check out the Taiwan Innovation and Entrepreneurship Center based in the Bay Area. And if there's anything I can do to help, please reach out to me anytime at cindy at taiwanyuan.co. 让我们一起加油。See you next time.